Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sociology Channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Richard Osijo, Associate Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York. And I'm joined today by Bruce Haynes and Sima Solovich. They're going to be talking about their new book called Down the Up Staircase, Three Generations of a Harlem Family. Bruce and Sima, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Richard, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great. So I was wondering if you would start just by telling us a little bit about your own uh, backgrounds. Obviously, we learn a lot about Bruce's backgrounds in the book, but um, maybe your uh, just professional backgrounds and how you got to this point to write this book. Uh, well, I um, my background is in education, and I um, taught for many years in New York, um, specifically in Central Harlem. And um, I am, uh, now I'm working at the Department of Education as an education programs consultant, but I'm also a writer and editor. In fact, um, the reason I chose to co-write this book, which is a little uh, unusual, is is because of uh, Sima's great sort of uh, knowledge of literature, and uh, she reads quite a bit, and I know she has often edited some of my writing, and so I knew she had these very uh, sharp literary skills, and uh, I was hoping to bring them to bear on this topic. Yeah, right, um, right. As far as myself, uh, I'm a sociologist here at UC Davis. Uh, my specialty is uh, race, urban, and community, and I look often at the intersection of that in my work. And this project evolved out of a, a desire to write in ways that could show uh, how sociology could help illuminate um, sort of personal uh, uh, context and choices. Yeah, I mean, this book is a real sociological memoir. Um, at times, it's very personal and intimate and really focused in close on the family. And at other times, you really telescope out to put your family in, in context. So what was this decision like for you to to go down this path and to, to turn this lens onto such a personal and, and intimate part of, of your lives? Well, I think it's... Uh... It's kind of organic. Uh, you know, my former colleague, Lynn Laughlin, used to always say, you know, start where you are when it comes to sociology. And uh, it so happened that I was the grandson of George Edmund Haynes, who was a urban sociologist and uh, first African-American to graduate from Columbia University with a doctorate and uh, a founding member of uh, Du Bois' Atlanta School and an early uh, social scientist who studied migration. And I inherited a lot of materials uh, over the years, and I guess it was my sociological instinct. I became a family historian and have been collecting things ever since I was a kid and literally carrying them around in boxes uh, from place to place. And... Um, there was this amazing history, I thought, that both George Haynes and his wife, Elizabeth Ross Haynes, had participated in, uh, both in terms of their 
trailblazing uh, social science research. Um, Elizabeth Ross wrote the first study of domestic workers back in the 1920s. She also ran for office in Harlem in the 1930s. And I thought these were, uh, in, both, in both of, uh, of them, George and Elizabeth, were very uh, active in the Harlem Renaissance. And to my knowledge, this is not public knowledge. People don't know it. And I, and I felt, well, when I die, I'll be dying with this history. I felt obligated to, to do something with it. And um, originally, I, I thought I could write a social history without being in it. I think that was maybe naive. Um, both my wife and her sister, Sarah, had told me, you know, I, had, I was going to have to be in it. But I thought I could be a fly on the wall and write just about the social history of my family. Uh, but increasingly, um, my voice sort of needed to come out, and that was the feedback both from Sima and, and um, other friends and, and, and uh, uh, colleagues who read it. And um, we ended up writing more of a memoir than I had initially intended. Uh, so... Uh, I guess it is a bit revealing, and but I hope that 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 truthfulness uh, of the of the story helps to elucidate some of the social issues that I think are so important that are the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's so fascinating how really intertwined with and and at the heart of several key periods, moments, and organizations of African-American history in the 20th century that your family is. They're they're participants, they're founders, they're direct and indirect bystanders, and we see the the positives and the negatives of this involvement. And you mentioned your, your grandfather, George, who you know, leading scholar of the Great Migration and founder of the National Urban League. He hung out with Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois and the Harlem Renaissance. And it, I was just really, really fascinated that, that he was written out of a lot of that history, uh, especially the National Urban League. Well, you know, it's interesting. I inherited um, scrapbooks and pictures and this was a man who documented his life. Uh, it seemed that, you know, virtually everything he did, uh, if he was mentioned in a newspaper, whether it was at a church or if it was going to Africa or it was giving an award, if he was mentioned, he had a clipping of it. Uh, he kept uh, his correspondence with uh, the Scottsboro Boys, for instance. He was involved with uh, defending the Scottsboro Boys and debating with the communists over who would actually and the Scottsboro Boys, and so I have a, a binder with all of these correspondence with uh, um, people involved with that event, and and um, so I thought, you know, this unique history had to be uh, um, revealed, and I'm, I'm hoping eventually that some of these documents I have will wind up in, in a museum someplace, because they should... Uh, uh, Right, right. What explains why we don't know who your grandfather uh, was? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I began to realize as I thought about uh, 
historical problems, uh, you know, problems of uh, how history gets retold and who does the retelling. And um, in a sense, uh, un unless he had family that was going to go into the field, uh, there was no one with vested interest in telling his story. There are other people with vested interest in telling their own story. And uh, I can see how... Um, People get substituted over time, or and when we focus on particular individuals over time, and those other individuals become more invisible. Uh, we do that with with every, with every social movement we could discuss. Uh, you know, we focus on Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, and forget the many many uh, leaders, both big and small, who were participating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One. So, uh, yeah. There's, there's a really, what I find really fascinating in the book is how really Harlem as a neighborhood is almost a character. And we, has, it has probably always been seen as one big black neighborhood, one homogenous mass. And I think historically we often think of Harlem as the swanky Harlem of the Harlem Renaissance. But you really you really show historically how Harlem was really this collection of sub neighborhoods and subgroups and a lot of real working class groups who were the backbone of Harlem rather than just the the poets and the artists and the the civil rights leaders and the neighborhood really had a very broad cast of characters in it well i'm 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 so appreciative that that came through um you know, Harlem, its image in the public mind is so full of stereotypes and tropes. And, um, you know, this project actually began with uh, a, a suggestion by a scholar that uh, we both know, uh, Professor Sharon Zukin, who suggested I write a piece for a conference uh, uh, panel that she was hosting. And uh, she wanted me to write something autobiographical about uh, my my community. And uh, there are a number of us scholars doing the same thing. And and I thought, oh, I could use this to write about Harlem. And that piece actually became a, a chapter in a book on ghettos that I did. And um, and I guess it served as a kind of backbone. This idea that I want to tell a story that was organic, that told about my community in a way that I experienced it, not in a way that uh, you tend to read about it in the newspapers or see it on the, on the big screen. Um, but you mentioned a certain, I think, uh, the idea that it was a character, and I have to say that's really where um, Sima's uh, contribution to the project uh, we can really see, because she had very clear ideas about um, how to layer the different levels that I wanted to capture in the book, the personal versus the sociological. And, and she had a very clear idea that the house would be a character and that the community would be a character. And she might want to speak uh, that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that telescoping, which you mentioned earlier, you know, is, is definitely a good way to put it because what we wanted to do was to you know, constantly zoom in and out of the story. And so, you know, as the characters in the book, Bruce's family, 
played, you know, different roles in history. I mean, they were, you know, you could even see his brother George as kind of almost like a Forrest Gump kind of character in terms of, you know, you know, with definitely in, you know, playing playing a central role that, you know, shed it, you know, that can shed light on what was going on, at the, at, at, whether it was, you know, during the um, um, Poor People's Campaign and later getting involved with, you know, the Nation of Islam, the crack epidemic. You know, he was he was a character in that story, as it and and really, um, it provided a way to tell this larger story in a in a very personal way. And so, I I think that that was something that we tried to do throughout the book, and and in to the extent that the characters in Bruce's family were so central. You know, with the mother, with the different arts movements that she was um, patronizing, and it allowed it, it. It it was very easy to then, you know, move outward into a, telling the larger context of the story through these characters. That's something I really appreciated a lot. Just going to comment that Emma had the advantage of having met my parents and. You know, have had been in the house and um, had kind of experienced uh, how where the house had gone to and where my family had gone to. And um, in some ways, she helped me tell the story of how that came to be. Well, I I got to see the house at you know in in the later stages, and so I think. Um, for Bruce, because it was a gradual process, um, it was maybe less striking to him um, what it had become, um, how deteriorated in the level of decay that had, you know, it had devolved to um, by the time that I saw it, because it was a gradual devolution. So um, I think, you know, maybe, you know, I that allowed me to perhaps, you know, be more... Well, not just the house, but also in, in the period of transition where right. George went from um, being severely mental, mentally ill to finally getting involved in, in, in programs where he could begin to you know, stabilize his life. And, uh, and that was connected to his care for my father towards the last couple of years. She got to observe that, and she got to observe my parents in their final years, and and so you could see how um, you know when you're getting three newspapers a day, right? They used to get the Post, the Daily News, or the, the New York Times, actually four, and the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they love to read. But of course, trying to keep up with that kind of uh, paper when you're getting you know four inch stack of newspaper every day. Um, so it's needless to say that after a few weeks, it uh, started piling up, and they never quite ever got it under control. Things just continued to uh, overwhelm them. Right. And just as you've been implying here, the, the house as a real character here and also as a, as a metaphor, I think, for 
the the state of the family over time. Your your grandfather buys the house on uh, Convent Avenue, right in the Sugar Hill section of Harlem. Your father buys it off of him, and that's where he raises the family. And just over the decades, we we see time and again all these different ways that the house just deteriorates and just breaks down and so on. And obviously the, the, the strongest metaphor is of this house's deterioration is of your, your parents' marriage and their relationship. Yes. Well, you know, the house is, is transformed during the 1950s into a three family house. And so they rented out the bottom floor. And when, uh, uh, my brothers were young. They rented out the top floor. Um, and then when I was very young, only the bottom floor was rented. And so the house was sort of updated, so to speak, back in the 50s. Uh, and then it kind of got frozen in time. So it didn't, it wasn't as if it stayed in its mansion design. It got sort of redesigned. Uh, in, in the way that many of the, the Harlem Brownstones had because people really couldn't afford to, to pay those mortgages, so they tended to rent floors to family or friends or, or even to strangers and um, turn them into, you know, small apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and your parents in, in general really represent these, I guess, really different incarnations of the black middle class in Harlem at the time. Precisely. Trying to eke it out and send three sons to private schools because the public schools around them crumbled. And you're trying to do that off of social worker salaries. And so there's a backstory to why they couldn't uh, buy new furniture or buy new rugs or or why my father's uh, economic strategy was, you know, when when we were young, he painted the whole house himself. That was quite a job. Uh, you know, that's a 5,000 square foot house. But as he hit 70, 75, that became a challenge. And so, you know, painted, you had things like rooms that were painted with, you know, hallways attached that there weren't because he just never got to it. And, you know, projects that didn't get finished and um, he couldn't keep up. And that mixed with the personal conflict between the parents. So, you know, that's another dimension. And so they use the house in a way to kind of, you know, get little stabs at one another. And so the mother stops cleaning and the father stops investing in the house. And and so, it, you know, their their marriage, and you know, um, really gets, or the conflicts in the marriage get played out. In the house. Right, but in they, the house. But they continue invested in, in, in the children because, you know, it was all about sending us to good schools and being a platform for our success. So they sacrificed. They never took vacations. They never went out to eat until uh, the last five years or so my mother got in. We will have these big banquet dinners, uh, which she really couldn't afford. Uh, I realized after she passed away, I, I don't know why she was uh, really funding these dinners that probably cost, you know, seven, $800 at a pop. And but she couldn't entertain in her house either. Precisely. So it was a way of 
she had sacrificed a long time, so now she was, you know, getting a little bit of her party stuff back, right? But she couldn't do it in the house, so she had to do it out at a restaurant. And uh, you might call it her last hurrah. Right, and all that time they had been putting all their resources towards you and your your two older brothers, and this part of the book to me is is the other major storyline here, and that is the your your own journeys through uh, Harlem and New York City, and it's really these three paths that you follow, and these paths are are in many ways just the story of 1960s, 1970s into 1980s urban America. Uh, we have the uptown scenes, the downtown scenes, the Nation of Islam, the counterculture, the rise of race consciousness, and you really kind of show these three different paths, I guess, that you you and your brothers take. So there's there's George, who you've talked about a bit, who goes from be aspiring to be an artist to learning about self sufficiency and the Nation of Islam to to going into the 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 drug scene. Tell us about that that path, that journey that that George went down during the that time period. Well, you know, it was um, I couldn't have told that story without um, my brother having uh, worked with us. So it was a sort of team effort. Uh, we interviewed him over the course of a year and a half or so uh, over the phone, um, asking questions asking him to tell stories, asking him to tell the story again so we could make sure that things were not um, fantasy or false memories. Or um, so We had, did a lot of cross-checking. And then I also had my own memories of certain events going on, and so I could always... There was a certain kind of dual viewpoint that I was able to capture because there was a lot of, oh, that's what was happening, oh... Um, I didn't realize that. Well, this is what I saw. And so um, we had different experiences of the same event. And then your your brother, Alan, who he really comes across as very much like a free spirit, um, artistic, uh, creative, expressive, and you know, somebody who was you know, very much an innocent victim of a very... Uh, difficult time in in this case the city of Yonkers close to New York but that that general urban history that was going on in the US I mean it, it, for me it was quite interesting for the difference of my two brothers uh you know George was was very drawn to the black milieu you know he was he was into jazz and and he, and, you know he was into um you know Africa and Egyptology and and black art um, and the nation, and, and Alan, Alan had, uh, you know, uh, friends of different walks of life, he, he liked to bike ride, uh, he was a musician, he was a more bohemian kind of a character, as you say, a free spirit, um, but, um... And he had a lot of interracial friendships a lot and relationships. Of a, a lot of interracial friendships. With with what I would call the hippie crowd, you know, they looked like hippies to me when I was a kid. You know, guys with long hair and and bell bottoms and and patches on their jeans and um, you know, uh, smoking weed in the closet uh, that he had rigged with a little light so that if my father opened the top stair door to the staircase, the basement, the light would go off and everybody would 
scramble out of the little cubby hole, and uh, he did never he never discovered the, <laughs> the little secret uh, space they had down there. And this was, you know, very sixties uh, kind of rock music they're playing and listening to. You know, Cream and Jimi Hendrix and Boko Haram and uh, uh, Grateful Dead and uh, you know uh, a lot of uh, what was considered, you know, acid rock and. And rock Alan and, and George fought a lot because of these. I mean, they had very. They had real differences. Through their twenties, uh, when I was in my teens, so maybe when George was in his late twenties, and Alan was, uh, you know, maybe in the year or two before Alan passed away. So I guess George is maybe twenty six or so, twenty twenty five, twenty six. Um, you know, some one time they actually had a fist fight and came to blows. And was it over just how? Disagreements over how they were living their lives and the the, the basis of it. Well, I, uh, it was hard to know. Um, I think it was their orientations. Um, you know, um, Alan was this free spirit who had all these white friends, and and uh, he married this white woman who was much more senior to him, and actually senior to George as well. I never really thought about that, but. Um, and, you know, I don't think that was, he didn't approve of that, and um, they had a very different, um, you know, Alan was exposing me to rock music and say, hey, here, check out this cool music and let's go bike riding, while George was saying, um, you know, uh, do you know about the Black Cowboys? Read this book. And so they had very different kind of orientations. And, and I think I, I was influenced by both of them to the degree that I, I appreciate the notion of racial uplift, the notion of you've got to help yourself and you've got to help your own community. But I also embrace the notion that um, people are, are people and human beings are fundamentally the same. And, you know, the particularisms of race and culture and, and, and the things we call ethnicity uh, are um, much more fleeting than human beings and, and the heart of human beings. So, um, you know, I think that's important to always keep in mind. And your parents come off as very supportive of their children and the, the decisions that they made and the paths that they chose. You know, when you're a kid, you think, I'll never be like my parents. And now I realize I'm an awful lot like my parents. Um, they had very similar attitudes about, uh, you know, that education was important, that uh, supporting your community and building your community was important, but also, you know, engaging in life and connecting with other people outside your community was also important, you know, participating in art and um, uh, uh sort of engaging with people who are different from yourself. And so I was always encouraged to have friends that were different. Um, I was always encouraged to um, go with the friends who are nice to you. And, uh, in fact, often if I brought a girlfriend home, 
I never learned that my mother never approved of her until after I had broken up, and then she'd say, oh, yeah, I'm glad you got rid of so-and-so, and I would be pretty surprised. So I had a lot of freedom, in fact, um, to explore the world, and um, even by the time I was 10 and 11 years old, um, and even during the 70s, we traveled on the subways. Uh, by the time we were oh, maybe 12, 13, we were, you know, free afternoons to do what we wanted. Um, that's not true to children today. Uh, we went to Coney Island. My parents never knew I went out to Coney Island. They had no clue how to think I did. But they trusted that we would have good judgment. In fact, I never did get into any real trouble. We always sort of had that instinct to, you know, time to leave when real trouble came around. That's, that's what you learn, hopefully, growing up in the city if you survive it. And you obviously had your background in Harlem, which during the, the 60s and 70s was you know, not at all times the, the, the safest place to be. And you also went to uh, mostly private schools for, for your education. And it's through this experience you, you use Elijah Anderson's concept of being able to, to code switch, to, to go from one community to the other rather seamlessly and be able to operate comfortably in both worlds. And then later on, you also show how you, in this manner, almost became uh, a bit of an outsider to both worlds, almost too black for many whites and not black enough for uh, many blacks. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, challenge. Um, Crossing boundaries, I would go to, you know, I lived in Harlem and, uh, you know, I uh, had to deal with friends and neighbors and uh, people on the street and, uh, but also had to learn how to, how to navigate, quote, downtown and, and so you learn to, uh, you know, talk a little more standard English when you met, went downtown and you learn to sort of pepper your, your language with more slang and, and more um, kind of Harlem diction when when you were on the streets, particularly because uh, being bougie was not necessarily something you wanted to be publicly identified with when you were moving around the streets. Um, but to tell you the truth, you know, growing up in the city, um, every place was dangerous. I mean, you know, downtown people thought Harlem was dangerous, but in fact, my perception is that. Uh, once you left your home, Manhattan, the streets were dangerous. And so anything could happen anywhere. Um, and so you hit the subways and kids are traveling around and kids are walking the streets in neighborhoods. And, and so a confrontation can happen virtually anywhere. Um, and in fact, Central Park was probably one of the scariest places I used to think about uh, walking through, uh, not necessarily Harlem. Um, and of course, it's all about the time of day, right? Uh, you know, a certain time of day, one street might be perfectly safe, and then at nighttime, uh, maybe not so safe. Yeah, right. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you're, yeah, you're, you know, we, we wandered into Coney Island neighborhoods sometimes, and you know, I had bottles tossed at me, and I was called uh, not so pleasant names, and uh, and we ran. Uh, much like the guys in Bensonhurst uh, um, who ran, and uh, but 
those guys didn't make it across the highway. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, those are the kind of incidents that happened in the city. Lucky for us, you know, no one ever caught us. <laughs> we were fast. <laughs> and this experience really kind of led you to your own professional interests, to your own research agenda. Well, you know, the the, the story of my life is coping with, with the conundrums of race and class. Um, not really, um, not finding a whole lot of people who were like me in the institutions that I traveled through. And, um, and that's not true for all middle class black people. In fact, I have friends who came from Cleveland who are just a little bit younger than I am. And they came through a whole cohort of young, uh, African Americans who all, went on to go to, you know, from um, sort of elite prep programs into elite prep book, uh, high schools and colleges, and, and many of them became professors or lawyers or professionals. Uh, but I had no such cohort. Um, George and Allen kind of had a cohort, but I was, uh, I was pretty alone coming through my, because I was that sort of, Fake baby, surprise baby. <laughs> that my plan, my plan. You know, so my brothers were born right after the war, 1950, 1953. My parents were just married. They had two boys. Everything was planned. And then suddenly, you know, seven years later, I popped in, and um, parents were kind of old then, and I was the surprise child. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> What I find really fascinating in the book is when you when you summarize your the paths of you and your brothers and the you just kind of use the word but the word luck comes up and in sociology it seems we don't really use that word a lot we we talk about social context we talk about social structure and historical events and major forces and it really reminded me of um a friend of mine, uh, Randall Contreras, and in his book where he really reflects on his upbringing in the South Bronx in the 1980s and how he missed the crack era, the peak of the crack era, by maybe a year or two. If he were born a year or two before when he was, his venture into the crack world would have been probably successful, and he might have just gone down that path, and that would have been it. For him, it turns out he was a little bit late. The market was drying up, and he uh, was bad at as bad as a drug dealer. And he quit the business uh, quickly, went to school, and then got his PhD. And the rest is history. And you know, in here, because I guess it has that memoir aspect to it, you can say it was luck, right? You can, you can, in many ways, you can say I was born seven years later, and I, I missed some of this stuff. Um, whereas your brother George may not have and Alan may not have. So three brothers all coming from the same family, uh, middle-class family, and living in a house, fairly stable, tenuous but stable, uh, all have these, these different um, trajectories that, that, that happen. And I, I just I think that's really fascinating, uh, the way 
you you use that just that idea of luck. It's refreshing to see as a, as a sociologist. Well, you know, I, it kind of reminds me of the movie Sliding Doors, or uh, you know that scene that you know that that happens in both big ways and small ways in our lives. That um, you know, you miss the bus, and and because you missed the bus, you got hit by the car because you crossed the street. But had you caught the bus, you couldn't have been hit by the car. And so, you know, life is contingent in that way all the time, it seems to me, that there is this sense of, uh, we like to think we're in control, but in fact there's that sense of there's never any control. There's always uncertainty sort of right at our doorstep, so to speak. Um, And so the notion that, um, you know, had George made a different choice back when his teacher in high school said, George, you should go out west and go study. And George was like, no, i got to deal with this politics here. This is more important to me. Um, his life might have been very different. Uh, had a young woman named Kathy Curry not befriended me playing soccer in New York City, I may never have met Jay Shulman, and I may never have gone to graduate school. Who knows what my fate might have been. So there's a contingency to life that I think um, that's what makes the social world so unlike the the world of chemicals and and the physical world of, 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 that that we like to measure with uh, our uh, uh, techniques. Um, there's an uncertainty to the social world um, that I think it, we have to always be aware of, and, and often when we interpret social science data, we forget that contingency. You know, we look at a survey and say, oh, this is the real number from the survey. But in fact, you know, maybe the survey you got was that really small percentage of really huge samples, and you got one. How do you know? You don't. And so I think that if we approach life maybe with more contingency, um, you know, more sense of uncertainty, um, and they find more creative answers to some of the problems that challenge us. Hmm. What was the research and writing process like for you both to 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 do this together uh, as a first time? It sounds like it's the first time formally uh, working together. Well, I. Um we started uh, by my interviewing Bruce and recording the interviews. Um, some of it was structured. You know, I had specific things that I was looking for. Um, and many of them were more of the personal um, stories about his family, but also trying to push him to, um, you know, reveal more about himself. And, um, but... You know, they often ended up kind of taking on a life of their own and went in all kinds of different directions, and and that was really valuable. And um, then I would um, try to create some sort of narrative based on the interviews and, um, you know, some sort of structure to impose on it. And share it with Bruce, and he would look at it. And I kind of edit it and rewrite it, and, and 
Um, and we did that for quite some time, and we sort of had, I might say, like pieces of a book. And, you know, we had like a scene that was good, but we didn't have a whole, uh, we hadn't figured out the narrative arc of the book. But after time, I think, as the stories took on a life of their own, uh, and, and we laid out the timeline, we started to, the, the natural arc started to take shape. And I think from there, we were then able to really, um, you know, the process evolved over time. We stopped interviewing. Uh, I started writing more kind of uh, prose and, and then edited it, and then I would re-edit it again, and we did that for a while. And then over time, as we did um, more and more of the, the social science, Simma became uh, quite adept at uh, uh, looking up uh, research and uh, pointing me in directions. And, you know, sometimes her instincts weren't always on target, you know, but uh, in terms of how I might interpret something. But she was very good at saying, oh, right here we need something on crime, or, or right here we need something on... And then, then I would go off and, and dig into the social science. And, but increasingly over time she was doing that, and so the, the roles continually changed as we continued to write. I got. Sure that makes sense, but, uh. <laughs> no, it de definitely does. I, and I got the feeling. You mentioned uh, interviews. I did get the feeling in the book that there were that there was a, a basis in interviews that don't necessarily appear in the book in terms of quotes or, or characters. Did you do any uh, outside interviews with other family members or any friends who? may have uh, known your parents, say, when they were the age they I were did, when you were growing up? I spoke. I wouldn't call them interviews. The only formal interview, with, I would say, was George. But I did a lot of talking to people over a number of years, um, different friends uh, who knew my parents, or some who had been in the house. Um and many of them reminded me of small details, and so it was interesting how organic certain things would come up, and they would mention a story, and I'd be like, oh, yes, and then I'd have a flood of memories come back to me. So there was a lot of um, sparking of my memory by doing that, I think. Right. And then I could also, I could, um, you know, being the social scientist, I, I don't, like having just one source for things. I like to have multiple sources. And so I was always cautious if I remembered something one way, I'd always need to confirm to see how my brother remembered it. And then if, if there wasn't a consensus, we had to reconcile that somehow. Um, but I didn't want it to just be a story based in memory. Right, right. You wanted some fact in there, right? Some hard detail. Well, right. And so I had to confirm certain things with people who, who were still living from that era when I, whenever I could. Um, but there was also a lot of confirmation of things through uh, using secondary sources. I, uh, we created an amazing library. Uh, I don't know how much money we spent in buying books on our 
architecture on Harlem, on 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 communists in Harlem, on Father Divine, on I mean you name it, we bought resources and of course we were looking for the, the top scholars in their field and, and so we we tried to draw from the most knowledgeable uh folks we could. Um so that was a that was an adventure of reading uh, for us as well. And as you noticed, I might have noticed that we have uh, chapter notes at the end. Um, and the idea was that um, the book could be used for undergraduates um, in the substitution of a primer. You know, we always talk about the sociological imagination, but my idea is this book is a representation of that in action. Uh, and it's also... Uh, an example of public sociology as we take the contributions that sociology has to explaining uh, social life and, and um, gave it a new new context. I, I definitely agree that this would be an excellent book for faculty who teach urban sociology, urban studies, or even something like you mentioned, like a public sociology uh would be would be would definitely benefit from from using it. So um, I'm seeing now we are uh, taking up a lot of your time, and I think we should cut to our our final question. I'm just curious to hear what you both are working on these days. I'm uh, working on a book right now that's based on one year of my life as a teacher in a second-grade classroom in Harlem. Um, it focuses on seven kids, that um, two of whom I've followed closely throughout the years, and the other five that I followed more, you know, within the last five years or so. Um, who they were at seven, who I was when I taught them, um, many, over 20 years ago, um, and who we've become. And so it's, I guess you could think of it as a 7-Up story that's based in Harlem. That's what I'm working on right now. Great. And, I'm sorry, did you want to follow up? No, no, that just, that sounds, that sounds really cool. That sounds very interesting. It sounds like a great follow-up to, <laughs> to this book. made an amazing commitment to some of the young people in Harlem, and that's when I met her. She was, had been uh, named Teacher of the Year in Central Harlem the year before I met her, and uh, some of the kids that she worked with, she followed throughout the years. Um, my, uh, my project right now is I'm completing a project that started many years ago um, on people who self-identify as black and Jewish uh, here in the United States. So it's a book about um, racial identity, but it's also we use the case of black Jews to explore the relationship between ethnicity and racial categories as they change uh, from the 19th to the 20th century. Cool. Interesting. So I, I hope you're 
you're both going to be uh, coming back on the show to talk about those books when they when they come out next. So thank uh, you. That that book will go into press and will come out uh, at NYU next year. All right, awesome. That's going to be cool. Cool. Looking forward to that. So uh, I want to thank Bruce Haynes and Sima Solovich for for coming on the show today and talking about uh, down the upstaircase. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for taking an interest in our work, Richard. All right, absolutely. Take care. Take care.